Hello, and welcome back to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest today, Ben Heck. And we're your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Wow. Well, welcome, uh, Ben. Welcome to episode number 23. It's such an honor to be on the show. You know, last time I took a vacation earlier this year, I was also on a podcast. And now I'm on another vacation on another podcast. It is inescapable. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, where, are you, uh, where are you vacationing? Well, uh, let's see. It's my friend Parker, whom you know, of course, and right. Chris, and we're in northern Wisconsin on a fishing trip. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we're up by uh, Birchwood, Wisconsin. Which is by Eau Claire, which is east of Minneapolis. Okay, there, that should be enough information for anyone to figure out where it is. <laughs> Try to triangulate your location. Yes. <laughs> well, if you say Birchwood, people are like, what? But everyone knows where Minneapolis is. Right. Most people. Most Americans should know where Minneapolis <laughs> Most is. Most of them. Isn't that where the uh, uh, Mall of America is at? That's correct. It's also where Prince is from. Mall of America is pretty cool. I was there when I was like 17 when it first opened in the 92 or 93. That was where they had the first Dactyl Nightmare VR demonstration back in the early 90s. What, uh, I'm not aware. What is that? Well, uh, Dactyl Nightmare was this VR game where two people put on headsets and had to fight pterodactyls. And it was kind of a big thing back in like 92 or 93. And the Mall of America in Minneapolis was one of the places where you could play it. Huh. This was cool. long before the Oculus Rift. This was this was the Oculus, the pre-Oculus. This was that was even before the Virtual Boy. Oh geez, yes, that that was a nightmare. Yeah, I actually want to do an episode where we do a teardown on one of those and see what's in it, and then try to improve it as much as possible, like as a VR thing, you know, because VR is quote unquote hot right now. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that we can. Uh, I I don't think it's salvageable. There's there's not much hope for the what, Virtual Boy. Uh, the Oculus Rift or the Game Boy uh, VR thing. No, no, the Virtual Boy itself. I don't know if you could actually do anything with it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably well, not. I, 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 say, I think one. we should back up real quick um, and just make note that uh, uh, Benjamin Heck, Heck, Hecker Dorn, am I pronouncing that correctly? It's Heck and Dorn. Heck, Heck and Dorn, sorry. Uh, he's the host of Element 14's The Ben Heck Show, which is a, a popular YouTube show for... Uh, Hackers and uh, makers and enthusiasts of electronics and all kinds of interesting things. Yes, our show is so popular, it's almost as successful as people who do videos of unboxing products on their couch. (laughs) 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 While complaining about Batman v Superman. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So, Ben... um how how do you uh, get into hacking and, and modding and stuff like that? Electronics in general. Yeah. Well, my background, my educational work background was in graphic arts, actually. As far as hacking and modding electronics goes, that was something I was interested in as a kid. Like when I was 10, I had like those Radio Shack electronic kits. The little wires with springs yep. and stuff. I still have it, by the way. It's in my shop. And so, yeah. still prototype with it? No, it's useless. <laughs> but it's still intact. It's in pretty good shape for something a six-year-old dragged around, and that's like you know thirty-four years old. Uh, yeah, so I was into that when I was a kid, like wiring LEDs, and I would stick like LEDs into uh, electrical outlets and watch them smoke and stuff. 
But then I kind of, I kind of got away from it for most of my teenage years. And I didn't really revisit it until I was like almost in my mid-20s. And I started doing like hacking video game consoles. Like I took an Atari 2600 and hacked it up and tried to make it smaller just for fun. Yeah, I remember that project. It actually used two batteries. Yeah, it was very ghetto. It had a nine volt battery sticking out the front of mm-hmm. it. Because <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Did, did it actually turn out and actually work? Oh, yeah, it worked. It just was very crude. I think it's the only project you've kept. One of them, yeah. Because I don't really have any emotional attachment to anything I build. I mean, that thing, I guess I sort of do. I'd probably still sell it if someone wanted enough money for it. I don't care. It's just a thing. It belongs in a museum. So do you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so your emotional attachment is, is more about the actual making than it is the, uh, yeah. the item itself, right? Yeah, like the journey is the reward. Yeah, sure. So I started doing that, and I just put it on GeoCities, I think, just for fun. I made a website about it. And then I had all this interest. I mean, I was getting like 80 emails a day like from different people wanting to... They're like, oh, that's so cool. Could you build that? And I was shocked because I didn't realize you know, that there was a community out there that wanted that stuff. You know, This is before the maker fairs and before a lot of the conventions. And yeah, it was a, it was a weird time. But one thing I've learned is that at that time, which is like... 2000, 2001. Um, you know, people are always nostalgic for whatever they liked 20 years ago. So 30 year olds were nostalgic for the video games they played when they were 10, like in 1980. So a lot of people were like wanting to like get back into this and like collect these vintage games. And you've seen that pass on. Like now Atari stuff is dead. It's all about NES, SNES, N64, because people like Parker's age are now thinking about the stuff they played when they were kids. Right. So it's kind of interesting to see like the uh, nostalgia bullseye keep it's a continually moving target. Yeah. yeah so it's a, I, it's a wave that always has an end to it. Yeah. I think there's a secondary wave, which is like when you like when you're 50 or 60 and you start buying motorcycles and crap like that. Uh, but I don't think they care about uh, video games at all. So yeah, <laughs> I, I started building more of those on the side. Then eventually got to the point where I was building a lot of them, and then I got a a book deal to write. Hacking video game consoles for Wiley Publishing in 2004. And I was like, well, this is a good time to, you know, quit my job, which I didn't like anyway at the time. So I spent like a summer writing that. And then the thing was, I never got around to working for the man again. I just kept on doing hacks and mods and projects, you know, contract work for people. And I pretty much continued that to this day. Although, yeah, in 2010, we started doing the Ben Heck Show, which is sponsored by Element 14. So that's my Very story. Cool. I can also crack an egg with one hand. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Either hand, too. Lefty, righty, doesn't matter. Switch cracker. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's awesome. So, so um, can you actually uh, let us... Uh, what, what's been going on with the Ben Heck show? What's, what's coming up and what's new with that? Because uh, I, I ask because I, I certainly watch the show. It's on my kind of rotation stuff. So what's, I'm curious what's coming up now. What was the most recent episode that you can remember? I actually have no idea when they actually air. Oh, shoot. Um, <laughs> oh, I yeah, no, right no, now, now you put me on the spot. Because <laughs> we, fil- we filmed them like three to four weeks ahead of them airing. So I lose track usually. Uh, I, I got a computer oh, right gotcha. here, man. I'll, I'll save you. Um, well, probably the coolest thing we've done is we actually got the people with the PlayStation Nintendo prototype on the show. I don't know if you saw that in the news. 
No, I didn't. So the late, latest one was the uh, Raspberry Pi Zero portable computer. Oh, okay. That's that's the one I saw. Yeah, you you finally went back and and did uh, a Raspberry Pi project. Or yeah, the Zero we, well, project. we had a lot of requests for the Raspberry Pi Zero. The thing with that is, um, um, they're hard to find because nobody can sell them at a profit. Right. You, you just can't walk in a micro center and just pull your own weight bin and and get one. No, I'm talking about I'm talking about the retailers. It's like basically, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> it's um, there's not much of a margin on it, so it's kind of hard to find. That's one of the reasons it's hard to find. But our audience really wanted us to build something with it, so we're like, okay, fine. And we we acquired one, and then we tried to make the smallest Raspberry Pi device that we could, and it turned out pretty cool. And like we wired up a custom keyboard, like I did the matrix wiring while Felix wrote the uh, Linux code. So I'm really glad I hired a Linux guy. First rule of business, hire people that can do things you can't. <laughs> Second rule, profit. Uh, yeah, so then we, there was this, uh, actually, Parker, you know about the Sony prototype thing. Maybe you could explain Yeah. That. So we actually got to look at the Sony prototype back at uh, the Midwest Gaming Classic, which was... April. In April. And uh, so the thing about this is, um, it's basically a early prototype of basically a Super Nintendo with a CD add-on that was designed by Sony. Yep. And it was almost exactly like a SNES, except with extra RAM. And it was called the PlayStation. So the PlayStation started as a Sony-Nintendo joint venture to add right. on to the Super Nintendo. Yeah, I was, I was actually watching a video about that uh, earlier this week, and uh, Nintendo kind of poo-pooed the idea, and, and didn't Sony go off... I mean, that's when they made the decision to go off and make their own console? Yeah, um, I think Nintendo kind of went behind their backs or didn't like the hardware and then started working with Philips as well. And that's where you got the Philips Interactive CDI. We had all those awful Zelda and Mario games. That was a result oh, of it. They were so bad. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, these guys found this thing in an estate auction in a box of dishes. and But it, a box of dishes that had been owned by a former Sony CEO, right? Wow. And uh, I think, like, the dad had it in his garage or his attic for a couple of years. Like, he didn't know what it was. And then his son casually mentioned that his dad had one on Reddit. And then the, he's like, dig it out, dad. And then it was like, <laughs> the, then the world found out, uh, which is unfortunate because we found some leaky caps. And Parker, you said that could have been damaged by the heat. Yeah, it was probably heat damage how they were. They weren't exploded out the top like if they were overvolted. They were, but were they, they puffy? They were, they were leaked out the bottom. Yep. Exactly. Like they were, uh, heat, the heat ate the seals and it let out the, uh, the, not the magic smoke, but the magic goop. So we saw this Ooh. thing at MGC and Parker and I were like asking if we could take it apart. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing we yeah, asked. I w you know, I was just about to make a note that of course you guys had to take it apart and take a look at the inside of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he, of course. He wouldn't let us take it apart there though. However, um, Max and Karen like went up and talked to him for a while because I started talking to him and. I don't know. I, I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere, so I'm like, I'm going to go have a drink. And uh, But then Max and Karen persuaded them to come on the show. So who, who's who's the two people you just mentioned? Oh, Max is the camera person for the Ben Heck show, and Karen is our social media person. Cool. They both work cool. with me and Madison. And Karen's the one who's been teaching me how to weld. Oh, cool. Because I didn't know how. Anyway, so yeah, uh, then about two weeks ago, we flew them into uh, Madison because the son lives in Denver and the dad lives in Pittsburgh. And they brought the device with, the, with them. And they said the TSA, 
like didn't know what it was and they scanned it and the guy was freaking out because it's a pretty valuable rare prototype it's probably one of a kind and they let me take it apart and so we made an episode <laughs> about it and we also uh, fixed it up because it didn't work right it was kind of sad they had like this crappy radio shack power supply they're trying to use with it and i'm like okay we'll hook you up and i had you remember those sony power supplies we would use like for the rechargeable batteries yeah yeah yeah, yeah the plug in the back of it it was like dc 7.2 volts it's like yeah this is totally a sony thing so i dug out one of those power supplies from my bin in the basement yeah, and uh the playstation one power supplies yep it's the yeah, exact same, same thing even though this is like eight years before that and uh, so I got, you got like the 3000 milliamp one because that's used for the PlayStation and the screen. And yeah, it worked fine. Well, we I had to redo the bodges. There were some pretty, well, you guys know what bodges are. Yeah, green wire fixes? Yeah. There were some pretty hastily attached bodges. So I redid them so they wouldn't get torn and forgotten. And then I put little bits of tape on them so to keep them, keep them in place so people wouldn't brush up against it. And then as Parker mentioned, there were three leaky caps and that was preventing the CD-ROM from working. Once we did that, everything worked fine, even though we had no media. Yeah, I was actually surprised they uh, let you change those caps out. Before I did everything, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. Are you okay with it? Okay. Okay, I'm going to do this. Are you okay with it? <laughs> hey, the thing left in better shape than it arrived. Yeah. But it doesn't have that nice, goopy capacitor patina all over the board it now. It stank, too. <laughs> it, it, it smelled. You know, like if like you have like an infection or like a, if you get like a root canal, it smells. It's, it, you know actually what it smelled like? I bought one of those Atari 2600 landfill carts from Alamo, what was it, Alamoguardo? Yeah, yeah. Uh, from like the ET and like all those other carts. I bought two of those because I had to. And I was able to get one of those working as well. And it stunk. I, th- I For some reason, I didn't think it would stink. It's like it was in a dump for 30 years. Yeah. Anyway, those capacitors smelled the same way. It probably had some like dirty... <laughs> Diapers like leaking all over those those cartridges. Oh, and now it's up on your wall. Well, that's what I that's what I told Terry. I'm like, because a lot of people are like, oh no, Ben's just gonna hack that thing and destroy it. And I'm like, no, like I'm I'm. It's a part of history. I want to make it work. You know, like that thing they pulled. This out is of that the Fab Engineering podcast where we talk about the similarities between leaky electrolytic caps and the smells of root canals. <laughs> well, I take that back. It didn't smell like a root canal. It smelled like uh, a, a dump, which is different. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it was weird. I was eating something last week. I think it was like a mint. And I'm like, this tastes like a battleship. It tastes like a battleship <laughs> smells. It's kind of weird. What that's, kind of mint was it? Uh, it was like a oddly flavored Altoid. Uh, so anyway, I would say taking apart that, you know, prototype unit was probably the coolest thing we've done and i'm sure it actually ended up being a two-part episode because there was so much footage there was part one take it apart and see what's inside part Mm. two make it work and what we discovered about it was it's basically a super nintendo with a cd-rom add-on it was a little bit of extra like buffer ram yeah it wouldn't even have been as good as the sega cd it would have been quite outclassed by it at least in the ram department and it had no co-processors so it's possible and the reasons that nintendo didn't want to do it is it probably would have been kind of a dog yeah well wasn't the original intent just to make sure that the cartridge size could be larger i mean just the available amount of memory yes uh yeah but if you think about like the uh, turbografx uh 16 CD-ROM add-on, that had some extra stuff with it as well, mostly RAM. The Sega CD actually had a co-processor, a co-graphics processor, an extra audio ASIC. Yeah, Mm. it's almost like it's 
the Sega CD was pretty much its own console in yeah. the add-on itself, and then they you stuck the Mega Drive right on it. Whereas this was just more RAM, basically more RAM to load the games into and a CD-ROM drive. And it would have been slow because the uh, Super Nintendo, its main bus is only 8 bits, the data bus. So mm-hmm. it had a double-speed drive, we did learn. However, half the data bus of the uh, Sega Genesis, so... It, yeah, it probably wouldn't. It probably would have been a bit slow. Yeah. Well, and and the the processor in a Super Nintendo is only like two point six megahertz or something like. It that. tops off at three point five eight, which is okay. half that of the Sega Genesis. The Sega Genesis, and also on top of that, the Sega Genesis has a sixteen bit data bus, and the sixty eight K is thirty two bit internally. Plus, the Sega CD had a second sixty eight thousand running at twelve megahertz. So yeah, if you think about the video and whatnot on the Sega CD. Mm-hmm. This the Super Nintendo thing would have been even slower and jankier. That's oh, how wow. that's how Sonic was able to run so fast. Yeah, thirty two bit. No, wide no, it was the, it was the uh, blast processing. <laughs> blast processing. Well, I mean, if the Super Nintendo. Yeah, it was slower and it only had an eight bit data bus. I mean, that's that's not insignificant. I mean, I don't know if you, you guys probably were pretty pretty young when the Super Nintendo came out, but the joke was all the games came with free slow-mo. All the launch titles were, had a lot of slowdown. <laughs> I remember playing uh, uh, Star Fox on the SNES, and it's actually, I think they designed it with the slow-mo in mind, because yeah. if you run that game in an emulator at full speed, it's actually really, really, really hard to play that game. Yeah. Well, think about it with that case. You had you had a risk processor on the cartridge rendering the polygons into the cartridge's RAM, and then you had to copy that over an eight bit bus from the cartridge to the Super Nintendo's uh, bitmap planer every frame, which was like fifteen frames a second. Yeah, oh, that was a great <laughs> game, though. Star Fox is the best Star Wars game ever made. <laughs> Right, <laughs> just like Galaxy Quest is one of the best Star Trek movies ever made. Same thing. Can you do a yeah? Uh, a, do one of the voices from the Star Star Fox game? Oh yeah, yeah. Dragon. It's surprising how perfect that is. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Falco was always like Dragon. <laughs> yeah, go look it up. You'll, you'll be like, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's pretty close. No, actually, we, we joke about that game all the time. <laughs> the four, the four oh, sisters. yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I know, like, you younger people played N64 where they actually talked, but the older folks, we had to deal with, like, rah, 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 rah. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot, man, I was all Super Nintendo. That was, that was my jam back in the day. Oh, yeah, it was a good system. So yeah, I would say that was probably the coolest episode we've done lately, and we're also doing a BattleBots episode, like a three-parter. Uh, Felix, Karen, and I are each building our own robot, and we're going to see whose robot is the best. Oh, that's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Awesome. Any, any, any spoilers for that one? No, not really. It's just each robot has a different uh, radio communication method. Like, I'm using a RC plane servo controller remote. Uh, Felix is using ugh, Bluetooth, and Karen's is using XBs, I think. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so you know that's where we're getting the electronics part in there is just using three different ways of accessing the robots. But then I doubled the battery power of my robot, and then I, they're like, "You're cheating!" And I'm like, "Nah, nah." Because nah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I doubled it from seven point two to fourteen four volts. Yeah, like okay. a big lipo pack from the hobby store. I'm kind of disappointed though. Um, we're not supposed to have projectiles or flames or spinning blades, and I'm like. 
What am I going to put on this? I'm, what I want to do is I want to cut out little images. The, the, that Wesley should be Snipes. the that should be the title of BattleBots. Yeah. Well, what, my my workaround is I'm going to cut out images of Wesley Snipes as Blade and attach it to motors and have them spin. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm actually actually probably going to do is like a reciprocating uh, ramrod with pins. So yeah, it'll be all right. I mean, if I had my chance, I would have the robots shooting acid at each other and duct tape guns to it. I mean, I would just go all out, but <laughs> oh, yeah. we want to make yeah. it safe. It's got to be something we can film in the shop. Yeah, actually, we were talking about um, uh, doing, doing after we finish a couple of our projects at, at Macrofab, is doing a BattleBot. Maybe we should do a Ben Heck versus Macrofab BattleBot. Can we, can we have like no limitations with our robots? I think we should just use the normal BattleBot rules. Do you think so you would, can do flame? Is it? Would you think it'd be actually legal like duct tape like pistols to your robots and shoot each other? Do, do they have to take ten steps and turn around? Yeah, <laughs> like it'd be like Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. No, I think projectiles. You cannot use projectiles in BattleBots. Um, have you ever seen that thing at Maker Fair where they have the ships fighting each other in that, yeah. in that bay? Yeah, yeah, they shoot uh, bearings at each other. Yeah, but I mean, and, yeah, and they actually like to try to blow holes in the other ship and sink the other ships. And but it's all behind like plexiglass, so the audience won't get hit. I, I, it seems like it's more fun and traditional, and more I don't know, like gentlemanly, like to have a medieval battle bot. You know, the ones that just have like an axe that swings, or like a chopper arm, or something like that, or or something that spins at very high RPM. I, you know, the, you know cool? I've been watching, actually, I was watching some BattleBots the other day, and I was watching Best of BattleBots, uh, and and the guys who have, like, spinning bodies that destroy other uh, other bots tend to do better than most others. So you're saying, saying there's something primeval about swinging axes and swords that works in all situations? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's just some kind of, like, robotic honor that needs to be held up. <laughs> robotic <laughs> honor. <laughs> Swingosaurus, you could call it. Right, yeah, there we go. So, so hey, um, actually, so since you guys are both on the line on the other side, um, real quick, do you want to tell the uh, listeners how you two, uh, Parker and Ben, know each other? Sure. I, oh, I, yeah. I, I can tell that story. I remember that story. So Go this, for it. I, I can't remember what year it was. It was like 2009? Yeah, it was 2009. Um, so... Uh, Back then, Ben had a online forum called the Ben Heck Forums, where it's we technically still up. Okay, so it's still, it's still up, um, <laughs> and I was friends with a lot of people on that on that forum, and we hacked consoles, built electronics. That's kind of like how I got into electronics as well. And they were going to have the it was called the Ben Heck Experience at the Midwest Gaming Classic in uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee. At the Olympia Hotel. Yes, the one on the uh, in the suburb. Yeah, and so I was like, "Cool, I'll go." And so I, I you know, booked a room and uh, flew up there. And apparently, everyone in the quote Ben Heck experience, they just shared a room at like a Motel Six. It was like an Ramada, <laughs> like five miles away, and it was it was a, it was a shithole. Yeah, too. it was a it was like fifteen people that had. Like, someone wasn't wearing deodorant. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. It's, it was, like, musty in there. Well, you get, like, four or more geeks together, and that's just a, a statistical, you know, inevitability. And 
And so Ben was there, and I'm like, uh, this. I'm, I thought Actually, that I was. Think, a, I don't think I put deodorant on today. I don't know, but you know. Just, thanks just for sharing, Ben. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving the environment one arm swipe at a time. <laughs> Because, you know, there's so many hot babes we're going to meet out on the lake, you know. <laughs> okay, so we were at the Ramada. Yeah, and so at first I thought that was in Olympia, right? Yeah, where the event was actually And then held. I went to go check in, and they're like, uh, we don't have a reservation uh, for you. Excuse me. And I'm like, is this not the Olympia? And they're like, no. And so Ben was going back to the Olympia where the show was at. Yeah, because like, I just went over to say hi to everyone at the at the other hotel. Yeah, and so I... I Gotten, gotten a ride with Ben over to Olympia, checked in, and then I went to the bar because that's like the first thing you do when you get to Wisconsin. Exactly. And Ben was at the bar, and we proceeded to drink each other or try to drink each other out <laughs> under the table, and it did not work. <laughs> and I think it was oh, like, God, I was so hungover that next it day. It was like 4 o'clock a.m. when we, they like actually closed I the Remember that was bar. the night with the hot-ass sisters. You remember that? So, because yeah, they also had karaoke at this place, it was a really nice bar. And there was these two girls that went up, and they kept doing karaoke, and they were both really hot. And I was like, "Yo, Parker, I bet you those two are sisters, because no two women would both be that hot. But sisters are always equally hot." <laughs> it's oh, true gosh. too. I think it's the first time someone ever talked about that on the show. I even have a phrase for it. It's sisters are hot, friends are not. <laughs> you put that in a bumper sticker if you want. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Par- Parker and I became friends just because you needed a ride back from a hotel. Yep. And then... Uh, That's the condensed story. Yeah, I think the next day I woke up That's at pretty noon. pretty much the whole story. Yeah, that was the whole... That's it. I think the next day I woke up at noon still a little drunk. Yeah. And Ben was like... He, he was having problems with his Xbox 360 yeah. um, portal. It was a Darksiders one that I did for THQ. Yeah, and it was like in like 100 pieces, and he had his hands in his head because he was so hungover. And yeah. he's like, Parker, how hungover are you? And I'm like, I'm still drunk. <laughs> that was probably top 10 hangover. Yeah. Yeah, I Not would say. Not top five. No, that would be a top five for me, that, that trip. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, that was, I think I have been to every single MGC since then. Yep. And, yeah. Yeah, and then what, what we did was, well, you know, Parker, you know, helped found Macrofab. And then he also helped us design our PCBs for our pinball machine. Yeah, the, uh, the pin hex system and chroma color and all the other various little PC boards that litter the machines. Uh, Pin Heck was one of your first bigger projects, right, at Macrofab? Yeah, that was the first big project. Um, Spooky Pinball was our first customer at Macrofab. Nice. I remember it being really, really, really cold, for Houston at least, assembling PCBs. I mean, the only person in operations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. By hand, right? Yeah, because that was back when it was just me, uh, Chris Church, and I running Macrofab. So... I think we built a uh, we built all the pin heck boards for the America's Most Haunted game like that. Yeah, I mean, real, should we, real should we quick, uh, what is like the, the uh, pin heck board? What was that? Uh, what what is the pin heck board for people to know? So the pin heck board is a PIC thirty two slash parallax propeller based pinball controller that's an all in one solution. So everything you need is on one PCB board. Yeah, most of the people making. 
short run or uh, homebrew pinball it uses thing called P-Rock or other systems where it's a computer that connects to a board with a USB or serial connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my idea was like, no, that's too much money. We have to do everything with microcontrollers because it seemed like an overkill to me. Yeah. And so I designed a prototype system. And then what Parker did is um, he basically turned it into Eagle, which at the time I didn't know how to use. Mm-hmm. Now I've learned. Uh, yeah, so basically he trans- transferred it over to Eagle to make it something that could be manufactured, and then we've revised it ever since. And it's still like one of the cheapest, or I think it is the cheapest board set that, yeah, that there is. Yeah, it is the cheapest board set to get going on uh, for pinball. I think we're at 200 USD all-in. Yeah, yeah that's, I think that's right. Yep. So, yeah, so we do these spooky pinball machines. Like We did 150 units of the America's Most Haunted pinball machine, which I designed. So what's America's Most Haunted? It's a pinball machine. The premise of it is it's kind of making fun of all the supernatural spook shows on TV where it's like, oh, I think I heard a ghost, you know, that kind of stuff. It, it's that premise, but done with a lot of humor, you know, and satire. So we did 150 of those, and it took us a while to get started, but then it took off, and now it's like a really sought-after game that costs more used than it did new. And hmm. now we're doing Rob Zombie, uh, a pinball machine based off Rob Zombie, which uses the new pin hex system, what, the Rev 7? Yeah, Rev 7B, and then there's actually a Rev 7C. We changed one of the connectors slightly, but yeah. Yeah, and so... Other people make pinball machines too, like small runs, like not the big companies like Stern. And uh, I don't know. I've heard numbers like eight hundred to a thousand dollars is what they spend on their electronics and hardware, and ours is two hundred. We don't have a computer. We don't have five Pic thirty twos like one company does. It's just two microcontrollers and a bunch of uh, passives and uh, transistors. Yeah. And we even use old school like tip 102s and 107s to appease the pinball crowd. Yep. The old the old uh, through hole MOSFETs. Yeah, the old pinball wizards. Because they're all scared of surface mount. But see, when a FET go oh, a surface oh boy, mount FET go. goes bad, it desolders itself and falls off. Yeah, yeah. So you put the you should put the board <laughs> upside down so you just fall to the bottom of the cabinet, just pick them up and uh Stick it in there. Of course, you did do realize if we laid those fets down, it would actually take up more board space. Yeah. It's, it kind of, I, okay, so I've seen this board. I think you could pull it off. There's a lot of room on the board. I understand there's a ton of traces, but yeah. I think you could pull it off. But what we can't, because it's one of those things, like, if you put it in there, old school pinball people will bitch. It, it sucks. Oh, yeah. We've yeah. had to explain that with Chuck, and I have to, you know, Parker and I have argued about it, and it's just... It's it's the nature of the beast, you know. Uh, there's a bunch use? of there's there's voodoo in those MOSFETs. Uh, I believe Stern's MOSFETs are they through hole or? Oh God, yeah, on their node boards. You know, I don't know. I we've seen the board sets. Most, but I don't remember most of it's. I believe most of it's surface mount. Yeah, it is mostly surface mount. Yeah, but and, and, and people hate it. And actually, I, what I really like about Stern's new system is they put the back glass or the back box LEDs on that board. Yeah. No, I think their system... That was cool. I mean, I don't really necessarily agree with the node part of it, but I think everything else they've done is really smart because it's just, they made it really cheap. There's one power supply. They knock it down. They have like RJ45 connectors. There's just a cheap old arm that's proven, although I guess they're going to beef it up in the next game. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that was our philosophy, was just to make it... uh, we basically took a WPC ninety five system and then modernized it. If you think about it, yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, I mean, we use the PIC32 for the game logic and all of the I.O. And then the propeller is really good at audio and video because it's got all the parallel processes to it. And, and, and Ben, you did the code in the PIC, right? Uh, yeah, for America's Most Haunted. And then the propeller code, I wrote most of it. Uh, we had some help with, from Roy. Yeah, we've uh, actually mm. mentioned Roy a lot on this show. Yeah. <laughs> whenever, whenever I get stuck on a prop project, I'm like, Roy, save me. Well, Roy <laughs> is a um, is a game developer by day, but he's also really into the Parallax Propeller uh, MCU. Like, didn't he? He wrote the uh, code for the C compiler, didn't he? Uh, I think he worked on it. He knows that pr- that CPU inside and out. So one thing that we did. Oh no, he he rewrote. We found an audio driver, like a, a DAC, basically. And he's like, oh, this thing could do way more. So he rewrote that and put like four channels of audio into one single cog. It was insane. And then when we are, we're working on another game right now after Rob Zombie, it's going to have a bigger display. And I'm like, oh, crap, we're out of RAM. So Roy and I worked together for like a few weeks. We came up with this way of interlacing the screen rendering where it uses like a character tile set and it draws what does it do it draws in the it streams off the sd card then it draws the characters and it also sends it to the display like three processes using the three cogs and it is doing it all simultaneously so basically as it's drawing one line it's sending the last line and it sped it up quite a bit and we were able to get like 70 frames a second out of it or something wow which we don't need you, you got a pretty streamlined now yeah yeah um so, yeah, he's been a big help because, yeah, he knows everything about that thing. He's like, oh, yeah, if you change this variable to a constant or a local variable, it'll speed it up. And this requires main hub access. And the order in which you arrange the bytes and the words actually affects things, which is insane. Like, you know how it's like longs, bytes and words? Mm-hmm. No matter how you define them in sequence, it's always going to put the longs all together, then the words and the bytes. So if you are doing... If you're accessing something defined as a byte array with a long pointer, it can get basically it can get out of whack. But it's yeah. handy to do because that allows you to access it four at a time or one at a time. So what we did was we changed all the SD card drive routines to work with 32 bits instead of eight bits, and it massively sped it up. But that that meant we had to keep everything long aligned instead of byte aligned. So if you went in and added a word, it would move everything in the variable map by two bytes and no longer be long aligned and crashed it. But Roy knows so much about the system. He's like, oh, you added a word before the byte declaration, which moved the memory map and now the pointer doesn't work. And so you just put in a null word and it works. That's awesome. Yeah, he's really knowledgeable. So shout out to Roy. H1Z1 Daybreak Studios. That's the game he works on. <laughs> I think we we'll have to get Roy on the show sometime. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. He sounds like a super cool dude. Yeah, I think he's working on a R two D two project right now, like a full size, full scale model of an R two D two robot from Star Wars, like an RC kind of thing. I don't know if it's RC. Um, they sh- they have them at uh, Maker Fairs and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if they're RC or not, or they're somewhat autonomous. It's been really fun squeezing everything we can out of that 10-year-old MCU. Like, on America's Most Haunted, the Parallax Propeller does a 128 by 32 pixel, uh, 4-bit, 16-shade, black-and-white display. 
and Rob Zombie. I mean, we, we pumped up the board, but it's basically the same board. It's just the same board built better. Yeah, it's the same board, just designed and built better. Yeah, and that game is 128 by 32 color display at 30 frames a second. Mm. And then the next game is going to be double the height, 128 by 64 dot matrix display at 30 frames a second. So, like, with each game, we're, like, just squeezing more and more out of this I think, processor. I think the next game is going to be the limit of what we can do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then we also we actually lowered the RAM because instead of like just drawing a 4K frame and then streaming it to the video uh, or to the screen, we actually only have 2K of video RAM that we do in slices. So we actually doubled the height of the screen and halved the RAM by doing it a serial, uh, serial uh, serially interlaced. This is how we did it. And this project didn't happen overnight. This has been years of, of working on it, right? Yeah, I think I started working on the Pinheck project. Oh, what? 2013. 2013-ish, yep. something now, like that. I started prototyping it on breadboard in 2011. Yeah. Well, the your first pinball machine, the, uh, the Bill Paxson Bill one? Paxson has half of a Pinheck board in it. Yeah, it has a single propeller. Yeah. yeah. And then... And then the board set after that had like it was all props. Yeah, that one was a turd. It was like had like four <laughs> parallax propellers on it, and the board was like twelve inches by twelve inches. Ugh, it was bigger than that, I think. And I got a really cool picture of it. Yeah, that's huge. And then oh, someone had that at a show. They had gotten it as a giveaway from Element Fourteen, and they had me sign it. And I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe oh, this thing exists. The big board. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but then what I did was we got the pick thirty two. Yep. Because Pick 32, well, they weren't that new at the time, but they were, you know, fairly new. And I'm like, wow, this thing has a ton of I.O. It's like, I'll use that to do all the I.O. and then use a propeller to do the audio video, like use each thing to its best advantage. And we don't even use half the things on the Pick. Like that Pick 32, I hate to say this, but it has an RTC built into it. We just don't use it. Oh, no. I know. And That's something we added to the next rev. Yeah. And then you had to change that bit in the config. Right. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Oh, well, we added an external one. It'll probably be more accurate. Yeah. For just doing time on a pinball machine. <laughs> then we'd lose two I.O. if we had to hook up a 32 kilohertz crystal. Yeah, it's actually, even with how much I.O. the PIC32 has, um, I think it's a T, TQFP 144. That sounds right. Yeah, at most. Um, we actually still have shift registers on some of the some of the lines. Just we need all of the yeah, pinball machines well, need a lot of IO. We, we drive. Well, I think the reason for that is because we drive the uh, MOSFETs directly. Well, not directly, but it's one pin, one MOSFET. And there's 24 of them. Correct. And then we have the eight by eight switch driver. So that's another 16 gone. The eight by eight lamp driver. That's another 16 gone. And uh, yeah, I mean, it actually goes pretty quick. Oh, all 24 FETs for for the uh, solenoids. Solenoids. Yeah. I think so that's pretty much weird. all your 144 pins are consumed. Yeah, yeah. I think we only have one free IO pin. Do we? Yeah, I think. Yeah, there's like one because we even the ones we had left over, we did other things with, like the RGB driver. Yep. You know, and then we broke them out onto the board so we can expand the board later with the. Uh, yeah, I had to fight with Parker about that because I wanted this expansion board, and I'm like. Take every available pin on both processors and bring it to this expansion <laughs> board. And he's like, no. And there's a lot of fights. We Ben won on that one. 
Uh, clearly, <laughs> because there's an expansion port on the board. The propeller has like two free cogs still. You could have one cog that could work as a PWM motor driver or stepper no driver. no RAM, though. <laughs> no, I increased the RAM. Our current kernel has like 6K of free RAM, which is a lot. So the propeller has got a lot of cool features, but its RAM sucks. All it has is 32K RAM, which is for program and uh, RAM. What is that? Von Neumann? Harvard? Which one's that? I think wow, it shoot, is. I, I can't remember. It's one of those two. I think it's yeah. Harvard architecture. Yeah, I think you're right. Because like a Pig 32 has a separate. Uh, well, it's all in the same memory map, but it's uh, definitely separated. I'm actually looking it up right now because I'm okay. curious. So we're looking at. Okay, so the difference uh, between those two is like a Commodore 64 has 64K, and that 64K holds the program and the RAM used by the program. So that's one way of doing it. Most modern microcontrollers have one area where your flash is, that's your program, and then a separate area where your RAM is. We are correct. Von Neumann is combined memory, data, and code. So that's what the propeller has. So that 32K has to hold your your frame buffer, your audio samples, all your stack, and your code. And we still have 6K left. Shushwing. Thanks, Roy. Yep. <laughs> I know it's fun. It's well, and you're only and you're not you're only using five cogs, right? There's three cogs left. Uh, no, the the new version of it only has two cogs left. Ah, uh, well, you got to do something with them. It's either two or one. It might only be one. Yeah, what I, well, what what I think I want to do is drive like uh, what's a NeoPixel WS two eight zero one. 28... 2812Bs. 12, yeah, that's it. So yeah. you could use one cog to drive those LEDs. So the, the propeller could drive them at a certain frequency and take no overhead. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. Or you could do a PWM motor driver. There's one or two cogs free on the new kernel. Um, I guess we'll see. I'm not actually working on a game at the moment, so I haven't really developed anything with it. But thanks to Parker putting up with my bitching... <laughs> we, we ported every available pin and I was also like oh you know how we have that RGB LED breakout connector he's like yeah I'm like put pins to that from the pick 32 and the prop so you could either serially drive WS2801s or NeoPixels and he's like Ugh. but he did it so that was nice of him trust me Ben I sit next to him I hear I hear every one of those groans <laughs> Well, I think about the old days, like old computers. There's so many situations. Like the Commodore 64 has an error in its design that cuts the disk drive access speed by 8 or 8x. And it's just because one person forgot one little thing. So I'm like, you know what? Every bit of I.O., put it someplace just in case. And that actually that actually benefited us because in America's Most Haunted, the PIC-32 talks to the propeller using basically spy uh, exchanging eight bits at a, or yeah eight bits at a time to send a message of 16 bytes mm-hmm. and then just through sheer dumb luck not that it really mattered because we did new boards anyway the same lines we used for that also contained uart3 hmm. so what i realized because so we have this dumb dumb system with microcontrollers right which we did to be yeah. as cheap as possible but it's really tough to update. People basically had to like hook up a USB cable to their computer and update it like we would program a microcontroller. And people mm-hmm. put up with it, but it sucked, right? So what I realized was like, oh, you know what I could do? I could 
change the bootloader on the PIC32 to listen to UART3 instead of UART1 on the production versions that are people's homes. And then I could program an STK500 bootloader on their propeller using all of my spare RAM. So if you booted up the system and the propeller found a hex file, not, well, technically a binary file. If it found a binary file in the root directory of the SD card, it'd be like, oh, I should program the PIC32. So how the Rob Zombie game actually works is the propeller, if it sees that file or if you hold a button on boot to force it to do it, it actually sends the SDK500 start command to the PIC32 over UART3, puts it into bootloader mode, and then one microcontroller programs the other one. Hot oh, microcontroller awesome. on microcontroller action. <laughs> so it just hammers the other one with the hex file or the binary file. Binary file, yeah. We actually have to convert it to binary. Yeah, because uh, yeah, uh, if, you, if you do a hex file, I'd have to write an Intel hex interpreter as well. It's yeah. easier just to like use a script to convert the hex file into a binary file and then dump it directly into its flash memory. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, that was a major coup to figure out because it all the all the end user has to do is burn a new SD card image, stick it in the game, and hold down a button, and the game will auto update itself. And that's what it is. It's one one microcontroller that has access to the SD card programming the other one. That's cool. And it's way better than the old AMH. You have to have USB cables and the right software to compile it and push it over and. It didn't work on Mac. It didn't the work utility on Utility rewrote. Yeah. We made this mistake. Like I was trying to like profile my users, which every company does. They just don't say it. And I'm like, okay, well, Mac's only like 10% of the market and blah, blah, blah. So I think it's okay if our Flash program only works on PC. Because Chris wrote it for us. Chris Kraft, other fishing buddy. But then what I forgot is that pinball machines are bought by rich people. And what kind of computers do rich people buy? Max, because they're expensive. <laughs> so we had a lot of people who were like, oh, I want to do this, but I don't have a PC. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I stopped and think, I'm like, oh, damn it. Yeah, we can never get it to work. For some Mac. reason, yeah, the FTDI drivers were not working for some reason. Yeah, it was a hardware issue, but whatever. Now it's no longer an issue. Yay. Woohoo. So that's the story of the pin hex system. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's a hell of a story. So you want to go into the RFO section, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. RFO sounds great. Uh, ben, uh, has uh, Parker made you aware of what our RFO section is? He told me what it was, but I completely forgot about it. Oh, wait. It's a new section, right? Sort of. It's it's the rapid-fire opinion section. So we, we kind of blurt out some things that have happened and then just give some opinions on it. Great. So uh, recently... Um, EagleCAD was purchased by Autodesk, the guys who make AutoCAD, uh, Maya, and Fusion 360, along with a whole bunch of other things. And this is kind of sending ripples through the whole Maker Hacker community right now because it's everyone is just on pins and needles with what are they going to do to my eagle, you know? Because it's it's been the kind of the standard uh, for makers and hackers. Um, so what do you guys think about that? Are you pro that? Are you happy with it? Are you kind of scared? Well, we, I, we, I, I think we talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, right? Yeah, just a little bit, yeah. Yeah, um, there was an interesting uh, interview with, with uh, one of the guys at CadSoft earlier mm-hmm. this week as well. And 
um, I think it was with Adafruit. And the cool thing was they actually were talking about a lot of the things that we were talking about last week. Yep. Um, some of the interesting stuff like uh, are they going to be changing how how the free version works? Because like right. right now it's the free version is for students only and, um, and I just like, handed Parker a beer by the way. <laughs> um yeah, so it's a it's a it's a uh, the the free version is for for students and makers only and it's only up to a certain board size and a certain layer thickness and blah blah blah. Right. And they're actually going to be streamlining that down to be more in line like their Fusion 360 and AutoCAD stuff to where right. if you're a maker and you or you make less than X amount of money, it's all free. And mm-hmm. so you'll be able to get basically a full copy of Eagle if you're a maker, which is really cool. Um, I'm, I'm thumbs up on that one. Any, anything they can make it to, I think they were saying like they have like 500 different ways you can buy Eagle, uh. different combinations. And they're basically well, gonna, yeah, based off of like pin count and layer count and all kinds of jazz like that. And then you can add auto router or all kinds of crazy upgrades and things like that. But yeah, I mean, uh, pushing it, crushing it all down into one is super convenient. Yeah, they're going to they're going to um, start skew cutting all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I think it's a good idea. I, I can't wait to see what they do. Well, okay, so disclaimer, like uh, Element 14, a parent company that sponsored the Ben Heck show, owned Ketsoft, but then sold it probably because they had an acquisition themselves. So, yeah, that was, you know, something I want to disclose. But now that Cadsoft is no longer associated with Premier Farnell, I guess I can say whatever I want. Yeah, so what do you think of the Cadsoft software? It's really cool, but it reminds me of something that was programmed in, like, the 1990s. I would agree with that. Uh, you know, <laughs> when, you, know you, you helped me learn uh, Eagle, like, three or four years ago. And it, it, as a former graphic artist... It's like I'm visually laying this out, but it's completely counterintuitive to every art program ever made. It didn't work like Inkscape or Corel Draw or Adobe Illustrator. It worked backwards. Yep. So if a, if Autodesk can use you know their decades of visual design layout expertise to make CADS or Eagle more intuitive to use, I think that'd be great. I mean, it really needs like an overhaul. Make, well, as, I know as, it's had overhauls recently, but it needs more of one. As Steven always says, uh, it makes it, they need to make the left button do something on the mouse. Yes. <laughs> Please. Left button is for select and right button is for modify. It's not supposed to be the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, so quick question, because uh, there's been some kind of rumors about it. Um, having Eagle all entirely within a cloud that also holds your designs. So yeah. you don't ha- locally have your designs. Everything is stored within some kind of magical system far, far away. So uh, wh- how do you guys feel about something like that? Is that, is, is that like a benefit uh, or what do you think? I, so no. Yeah, I don't really like it too much either. I don't like how, how that works in Fusion. It just seems slow. Yeah, it's mm. slow in Fusion, especially over like the DSL we have at, at Macrofab. That happened to us, I think it was last week before we went on vacation. It's either, I don't know who it was. Somebody at work was like, hey, Ben, we need those files from the Raspberry Pi Zero project that you mentioned, Stephen. And I was like, oh, wait, there aren't any files because I designed it in Fusion 360. 
So one thing that's really cool about Fusion 360 is you can click on a body and go print, and it sends it directly. It opens up in MakerBot software, and you can push print. It's right. it's that's awesome. But then you don't have any STL files. I mean, you can say export STL file. The fact that I had to manually go in there and export STL file, I mean, it shows a great you know iterative strength of the software to actually produce drawings. But I didn't even realize I didn't possess the files myself. So and, right. and it's not it's not really something like oh I don't want them to have my files because I use things like OneDrive and Google Drive all the time. It's just that I want to see them. Like I want to there should be a folder on my computer. Like oh there's where my crap is. Yeah, that's my thing. I, you I know wanna... I, I I agree with you on that. I like having at least I like to even. Pr- just pretend that they're mine. Like you know? <laughs> that they're right there. Yeah, like there's this thing like with Fusion, like oh, I uploaded an SVG to my cloud, and now I can put it into the file. It's like it's taking the long way around the barn, and ultimately, a program should be designed to make you get your work done as quick as possible. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Is because I use a uh, GitHub for all my backups and and file sharing, pretty much for all my open source projects. <laughs> and if if CadSoft changed that. How do you share your cloud files easily? Or how do you do revision control? Or how do you do everything that GitHub does? How do you do it on their cloud service? Yeah, that's a good point. If, if they do that, then GitHub is, I mean, it's kind of like giving them the finger in terms of uh, all the Eagle stuff. Well, I mean, we can't just assume that, oh, Autodesk bought them. So they're going to make everything in Eagle work like Fusion 360. However, you know, course, as a yeah. you know, overall corporate strategy that they probably want to get to that point. You know, if you think about Fusion, I mean, it has several things built into one program, like the CAM. I mean, I don't know if you guys ever use that, but like that's ridiculous that that's in there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. cool. I don't think I'd ever use it, but you know, it's cool that it's in there. But I, but yeah, as Parker was saying, yeah, there is some value. Reason I don't use the CAM is like, well, I've got this other program. I'm just going to use it because I know it and. I think at the end of the day, people do want files to do as do with as they please. Although, I will take this moment to say I think that Adobe Premiere, Photoshop, and After Effects should be combined into one program. Oh, geez, that'd be a monolith. I know, wouldn't that be awesome? It'd be killer. <laughs> It'd come on a Blu-ray, <laughs> <laughs> or f- what? Forty DVDs. <laughs> well, I mean, because that's a good example. Of like, you know, Adobe is a huge company. You know, it's like the size of the government. It's like a huge thing. So they've got all these different departments. And there's all this stupid crap with Adobe products that are completely inconsistent. Like, if you go, oh, I'm going to rotate this object 90 degrees in Photoshop, it goes in one direction, like clockwise. In Adobe Illustrator, rotating something 90 degrees goes counterclockwise. The two different programs from the same company use the same positive rotation and go in different directions. It's, it's all over the map. If you look, but then there's really no excuse for it because if you look at something like a Microsoft Office, all of those programs are really consistent design and feel, whereas Adobe isn't. So uh, actually, yeah, Adobe is something where I would actually like to see everything merge into one because it would make it But, but a lot of that faster. is due to tradition, right? I shouldn't say tradition, but just previous uh, versions uh, and people are just used to it. Yeah, well, I think they recently got rid of the cloud settings sync or like it, they got rid of it in some programs, but not others. That's like, okay, oh, it can sync in, you know, because I, I use Adobe like on my home computer, my work computer, my laptop. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I can sync my settings to all three computers. But then some of the Adobe programs, it's like, oh, no, we, re- we removed that feature in the last auto update. You didn't know that happened. <laughs> yeah. Lame. Fun. So, uh, uh, 
next to RFO, I actually uh, uh, found this on, on Hackaday, and Parker's probably rolling his eyes because this is totally a thing that I geek out on. Um, but uh, I found a, an article about a guy who made um, a discrete-level processor. He calls it the Mega Processor. Oh, yes, I na- saw that. The guy's name is James Newman. Um, and he he implemented 42,300 some odd trans, uh, transistors in a discrete level processor. That is a and lot of transistors. <laughs> it is an enormous amount of transistors, and it was one guy working on this entire project. Uh, and he actually has it fairly well documented. I shouldn't say fairly well. He has it very well documented. Uh, he has like data sheets and uh, opcodes and everything. Like, I mean, you can write a program for his his uh, processor, uh, and actually he, he promotes that. Uh, he said, if you ever come over and you want to bring a, uh, a program, please do, and he'll program this thing up. But one of the reasons why I, I wanted to bring it up is just because of the sheer monstrosity yeah, of I'm looking at the size what this of guy thing. did. It is ridiculous. And what's funny is it kind of reminds me of uh, a Ben Heck project. <laughs> Not just because of size, but because I've seen some of uh, Ben's stuff uh, at Macrofab, actually, some of the, the pinheck testing stuff, and it kind of reminded me of that, all this discrete-level, like, hand-soldering stuff. And all, all, the abso- point to point all the point-to-point wiring All the point-to-point love it, and, and I absolutely love it. I thought it was fantastic. But, yeah, but this- the, um, I, think, I think that's what Ben uh, excels in, is in just, like, hacking wires together and making crap work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's it it's it's amazing. So, so, you so there's forty two thousand transistors in that thing. Uh, at at a minimum, <laughs> there's there's more than that, and it's all wire point to point stuff. Yeah, it's, it makes me think of the Motorola sixty eight K. Guess why they called it that? Sixty eight K transistors. So this yeah, is the forty three point or forty two point three K. I'm just saying that's pretty beefy. <laughs> that's not like someone trying to wire together like a four zero zero four. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a pretty hefty process. Well, it's uh, it's uh, the size is ten meters by two meters, or in American, about thirty feet by six in feet. American, in the a, American yeah. imperial system. Well, he I think he has it in in like something like eight or so different panels, and the guy went through so much trouble. Every single panel is is very neatly organized, and it has wiring diagrams that show every path of everything on it. Uh, on top of that. Pretty much every logic gate has LEDs to indicate their states. So if you see this thing actually run, it's amazing. It's 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 by far uh, equally a sculpture as it is uh, just an electronic gizmo. A, a while ago, someone built their own Apollo guidance computer from scratch. Yep. So um, for anyone that's not familiar, that's the computer they had on the uh, moon missions, which totally happened. And they built two computers per mission. One was in the uh, lunar module, and one was in the command module. Uh, and was it, no, there's a third one. Was there one on the lander itself? No, it was at NASA. Oh, okay. So that was an exact replica, so they can test stuff before sending up commands. Yep, and then they built two of these for every mission as well. And uh, that was important because it was the first computer built with integrated circuits. It was like 5,000 NOR gates, right? Three NAND. inputs. Three, three input NAND NOR gates. gates. I think it was no, NOR. Yeah, no, I believe it was NAND. Uh, it was it NOR was the, it or NAND, was, one of the universal It gates. was like the predecessor for all the 7400 series chips. Yeah. So anyway, uh, 
not, I don't know, eight years ago, someone rebuilt that computer using, you know, thousands and thousands of gates. But this mm-hmm. transistorized thing you're talking about is even more insane. It reminds me of like Little Big Planet, where someone's like, oh, look, I made a calculator that can add two, two two digit numbers together. And now we have people in Minecraft building Pokemon simulators. It's, like, it's <laughs> yeah, just like, right. it's just insane how far that will go. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that yet, Steven? Yeah, so, yeah, I have. Someone it's made insane. a Pokemon. It was a Game Boy Advance Pokemon simulator in Minecraft with a working display that was color. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was insane when they had like eight bit adders in Minecraft and like I, nope, it got no, it, it got blows a lot it worse. away. Well, I think the transist uh, the mega computer is awesome because it it shows people like how computers actually work. You I, know, I, I actually think. Uh, ben was right, and it's Norgates. Oh, is it really? Yeah, I think it's Norgates. I'm kind N- of an Apollo Nand wasn't even invented geek. back then. And there were three input Norgates. Yes, they were. Yeah. Kind, you can you can actually go uh, if you just type in Apollo guidance computer schematics. There's a there's a great website that pops up on Google that just has just banks and banks of all the schematics um, used in it, and it's insane. I mean, it's like the absolute worst homework problems you've ever seen ever uh these schematics but it's just solid logic yep yes steven how much does this mega processor all forty-two thousand of its transistors actually like how big of a power supply do you need do you think this super simple power supply can power it you know what and and that's just the thing they didn't talk about the power supply and if you look at the videos and the images he's got it all nicely curated and it's in the room and things he doesn't show the power supply for this thing the power supply to run that many leds and transistors a discrete level has to be i mean i i don't even think the ssps could handle it well you gotta think is the leds are going to be 10 milliamps each right yeah something like that okay i'm gonna do a little little calculator right here Okay, take 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 a uh, a wild guess. Say forty percent of those transistors are on at any one time. Yeah. So it's forty-two thousand times ten milliamps times point four point four. So we've got one hundred and sixty-eight amps at roughly probably two point five volts. <laughs> okay, so so you know it, the, the thing is pulling to two hundred and fifty to three hundred watts somewhere around that range. Yeah, about three hundred watts for LEDs. That's not too bad. So actually, you ne- never mind. The SSPS could totally pull that off with a single channel. Yeah. Now all the transistors probably not, but that's a different thing. Yeah, you're right. That you were just calculating LEDs. Well, it's a lot better than a room-sized computer made out of vacuum tubes. <laughs> that's 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 probably thirty thousand watts. Oh, you have a MIDI controller on this box. Oh yeah, they because uh, we're actually uh, Ben and I are remote from our normal recording area, so I have this uh, audio box USB thingy brought to you from the North Woods of Wisconsin. Yeah, actually, we're gonna go out fishing again after this, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, awesome guys. Uh, do you guys uh, have have anything else? Do you got one more thing on this uh, RFO, or you want to skip it? Yeah, I, you guys sound like you guys need to go out and go fishing, man. Sounds good. You want to sign us out, Ben? 
All right. Well, that's been the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed all this interesting, illuminating topics of conversation, including the hot ass sisters and transistors, the hot ass transistor sisters. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Later, guys. Take it easy. <laughs> hot ass transistor sisters. <laughs> oh, God.